Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Get a Clue, the world's foremost podcast dedicated to the incomparable Clue Gulliger. I'm Elby. I'm here with the mic. I'm the mic. I'm here with Elby. <laughs> I just said that, I think. Well, it was backwards. Opposite. I didn't say I was you. That would be wrong. No. Yeah. So you're talking backwards, though. Right. Or am I talking backwards? I think we're both talking the correct direction from our own perspectives. Huh. Hmm. Wait, is this a philosophical podcast or is this the Clue podcast? Did I sign up for the wrong night? <laughs> it's the Clue podcast. Oh. <laughs> All right. Good. Good. My notes are in the other room for that one. Oh. <laughs> Wait, are you podcast cheating on me? No. No, never. You know I would never do that no? to you. Oh, okay. I trust you. Yeah, that's right. Trust the man. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Let's do the clue show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this episode's topic is 1960s television with a focus on TV westerns. Now, this is a topic that maybe some of our audience doesn't know much about. And if they don't, they're not alone. Let me tell you right off the right. bat, I had never watched any of this stuff growing up. It was not my cup of tea. But for those that don't have that background or experience and think maybe Westerns aren't my thing, give us a shot here. I was thinking a little bit the same way, honestly, when we started working on this episode. I didn't think I would get anything out of watching these shows. And I'd have to say right now off the bat, I was wrong about that. There's something here. <laughs> what do you think of Westerns in general, though? There are many Western films I enjoy. I haven't really, like I said, had much experience with TV. But it's not something I've ever really identified with too closely. I grew up on a farm. I grew up in a rural area, so it seems like it could be. But I think I may have just been, you know, shunning what seemed easy at the time, what was available. I grew up in Iowa, and there's a lot of love here for Mr. John Wayne from the state of Iowa. Those movies were on TV all the time, but it was never really something I was that into, aside from, you know, the random movie I would see and go, okay, that was actually pretty good. Or films I found later when I started just digging into classic cinema. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm kind of in the same boat there I always thought of westerns as like something that my parents watched you know or my grandparents watched like I always thought that they were these boring old things that didn't have much to do with anything like oh cowboys and Indians who cares right you know they're all stereotypes so who cares this is awful and stupid and we should get past it yeah you know there's good guy versus bad guy there's white hat versus black hat you know like my mom always if she comes in on us watching something like anything on tv or a movie or whatever she'll come in and she'll be like is he a good guy or bad guy so like there's this mentality of good versus bad and that just seems so simplistic and boring you know so i like you was a little bit of uh, i don't know if i'm really going to be into this but turns out i was and most of that of course is thanks to our uh, guy we're talking about here mr clue guliger because this is a really big piece of his career. And Absolutely. a lot of the people that I know and the people that like me that know him from his later work in horror movies on uh, maybe some random comedies don't know about that. Don't know that he was a TV star, that he was a big part of this lifestyle because it really was a lifestyle. But watching him here really does shine a different light. If you're a fan of Clue, this is what you need to see at some point. It was a very big deal. Like you can't you can't have Clue Gulliger without his roles on these shows. So we're focused 
focusing on two shows here, The Tall Man and The Virginian. But we do have to mention some other shows that he was in during this time. There was appearances on Wagon Train, which was a huge show. Have Gun Will Travel is a, a popular show too. Other than Westerns, he was doing The Untouchables. Uh, we already talked about Alfred Hitchcock last episode. His first real quote-unquote appearance on television was on the United States Steel Hour. That was with Paul Newman, actually. And, you know, you can just go to IMDb, okay? We don't have to list everything. Just go to IMDb. I don't know if you know this, but Clue has been around and done some work in its <laughs> The yeah, place to find yeah. that information is the Internet Movie Database. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think IMDb needs advertising these days? No. Not. Do you remember when IMDb, like, first came oh, yeah. about? It was, like, the most revolutionary thing that was possible. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> we're old. We are. So we're going to get into this episode, but first, how about some clue facts? Clue facts. Clue facts. They say to be a real cowboy, it's got to be in your blood. And in Clue Gulliger's case, that's pretty true. Clue was born on November 16, 1928 in rural Oklahoma. His mother was a Cherokee tribal citizen and both according to tradition and to Clue, Cherokee women named their children after the first thing they saw immediately after giving birth. Outside the window sat a red martin bird. The Cherokee called them Clue Clues. So he was given the English name William Martin and affectionately nicknamed Clue. It's the question most asked of Clue where his name came from. And Clue being Clue, he likes to joke that he's glad she didn't look outside and see an outhouse. Clue grew up on his uncle's farm in Taliqua, Oklahoma, Indian Territory, and prided himself on his ranching abilities. His job as a young man was to ride the fences, look for holes and fix them, and rustle steer. You know, it takes a strong character to be a cowhand. Clue sometimes talks about how his fingers would turn black from doing the work in below freezing temperatures and he never let one steer go astray. No sir, not on his watch. But not only was Clue a bona fide rancher and writer, he spent time learning cowboy tricks from his family. His father, John Delancey Gulliger, an accomplished vaudevillian who shared a Broadway stage with legend George Cohen, was also talented as a trick roper. But probably the most famous of the bunch was Clue's second cousin, the illustrious cowboy performer and humorist, Will Rogers. Will and John would spend hours by the bar and practice practicing rope twirling, and according to Clue's uncle, his dad was better at it than his soon-to-be-famous cousin, who, by the way, has a very fascinating life story in his own right. So inspired by his father's showmanship, Clue left the ranch, and after he spent some time in the Marine Corps, became an actor. He paid his showbiz dues by appearing on stage during and after college. He met his wife Miriam Bird Nethery when they performed together in a Baylor University theater, and soon the couple moved to New York where Clue starred in a number of live television dramas, and eventually signed on as a contract player with Universal. During this time, he was seen on some mystery series and crime shows, but the Oklahoma cowboy also found that he couldn't keep from straying too far from his roots. Universal had him work on a few different TV westerns, all of which led to his starring role of Billy the Kid on NBC's The Tall Man in 1960. And that, friends, was just the start of Clue's long and crazy career. You know, Clue says that being a rancher is the thing that he was most proud of in his life. And I can see that. It's like a major accomplishment to me. Uh, these things that we don't really think about doing anymore, you know, like we don't really think about the ranchers. Right? <laughs> 
driving cattle. We don't think about, yeah, there's none of that really. You know, it's just not part of our modern lives. So I find this particular set of skills very cool. So I love that Clue was a real life cowboy. Oh, absolutely. And it, it shows. It, you watch some of these older westerns and there are times you can tell who the actor and who the cowboy is. And yeah, totally. Clue never looks out of place when we see him in these shows. He obviously knew what he was doing and was pretty comfortable. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking also about stunt work these days like uh, how many stuntmen really have a lot of skill with horses and wrangling i can't remember too many lately and you know you look at the action movies and even the tv shows that are out there today yeah the stunts you don't see a lot of horses these days no back in the day that was like the thing mm-hmm. right and now it's just you know driving cars really fast yeah. i'm just imagining stunt classes and oh today we gotta do the horses <laughs> cars are so much easier than horses (laughs) this is dumb why do we gotta do horses there's like three westerns this year (laughs) costner can still do his own stuff right i don't know if costner's still doing westerns i hope not I I don't know. Sorry, Kevin. So to me, this is a fascinating era of TV that we don't really talk about too much anymore. The 1960s and Westerns. Well, it's not only we don't talk about it, it's not accessible. Like, not from a watching it standpoint, but just to make this episode, we had trouble finding episodes of these programs. (laughs) Yeah. The DVDs aren't on shelves anywhere. There's not on Netflix. They're not on Amazon. They're not on, you know, your go-to streaming sites. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, there are a lot of people on YouTube. That helped us out a little bit. Right. And it took a long time for us to find them, too. And when we were looking for Tall Man forever, like they were not even on YouTube or anywhere on the internet. And then all of a sudden, it was like this, you know, the the skies parted and there was a miracle in which someone uploaded like all the seasons of the Tall Man. Yeah, the entire first (laughs) season just showed up. We were getting ready to record and we were going to fake it. You guys are lucky. You guys should send YouTube a thank you letter. This mystery person. I don't even know the username. Yeah. But But good job, you. you. appreciate it. <laughs> Maybe it was Clue. It could have been. He's hiding out there. But why were they so popular? Like, why were Westerns so popular? I have some answers. Yeah. <laughs> the quick answer, kind of like you have already said, to me it was something my grandparents would watch. And my grandparents lived on a farm their entire life up until they were in their late 70s and retired and my family took over the farm. And that was generational. So, I mean, people lived not necessarily this life. You know, most of these Westerns are set in the early 1900s, late 1800s, post-Civil War Mm -hmm. generally. So, you know, it wasn't exactly the same. But the values and the kind of lifestyle is not that far removed from where these people were. I mean, yeah, they were only one or two generations from this time period. Like you said, post-Civil War in the Old West, you know. All this stuff was still in their minds. Sure. We had singing cowboys, trick ropers, like you go to the rodeo, you know, all of that was still like high entertainment to everybody. And even more serious things like 19th century antiques or Civil War artifacts, those types of things were also very popular. You know, Civil War reenacting actually kicked off in the 1950s. So you had people wearing Western style clothing still or a fashionable kind of Western style clothing, you know, there were ranch style houses that people were 
decorating like you know the the mid-century atomic ranch stuff that is kitschy today but was really the thing back then yeah i think it was a lifestyle that people had a fond memory of and kind of wanted to still represent they wanted to still keep things simple you know the world was picking up in speed technology and more you know white collar jobs and there was a lot of people that weren't i don't want to say weren't ready for that but they weren't interested in that they would rather remember this lifestyle and kind of be their own person on the range yeah you know that's kind of a theme that goes along with westerns a lot that isolationist sort of viewpoint that's a very big component to a lot of western characters so i'm glad that you brought that up yeah it's very much a kind of small world in a bigger world Right. There were people that still want out. There are still people that want that today, I can tell you. Oh, it's totally. Now, back in the day, movie studios owned the theater chains, which, of course, was very lucrative for them because they could produce lots of cheap, just kind of uh, filler movies. Just get stuff out there, even if it wasn't that much effort put into it. But they would turn a big profit because the cost of showing them in the theaters was really low. So they'd make a few big budget features and they'd do this thing called block booking, where the theater operator now the theater chains were owned by the studios but you still had to have some guy running the theater and he had to pay the studios in order to show the movies there it was a weird system yeah so the theater operator would have to buy this huge package of movies that were mostly the little nothing ones Mm -hmm. in order to get the big one like the big featured one so if they wanted to show the one big one they had to have these little ones and they would do this like for the whole year like they would buy one package and that would be all the movies that they would show during the whole year which is crazy now when you think about where movie theaters are at but back then movies played for long stretches of time i mean even years in some cases there would just be a copy of a movie that was popular still out there playing every few weekends or something so yeah it was definitely a different world and westerns especially the b westerns that we kind of don't have these days were like you mentioned cheap productions that they could just get out there yeah but the supreme court caught on to this though and figured that the studios were violating all the country's antitrust laws so in 1948 we had the united United States versus Paramount Pictures. And that pretty much dismantled this whole system. You know, I think that's maybe the last time the United States decided against an entertainment monopoly. I don't know. (laughs) We have all these FCC regulations now that allow for stuff like Clear Channel to own every radio station across the nation and all these laws that are pretty much in favor of the big corporations and not independent entertainment. So this is strange to me, but hey, it's a part of history. You think the other studios are like mad at Paramount still? Like it was Paramount's fault this happened? I know, I don't know. You know, Paramount was the most famous one. This was a bigger lawsuit. And so they just used the Paramount name ah, okay. as okay. a catch-all. There are other studios on the books too for this. I thought maybe this was like they were all doing it and then Paramount accidentally spilled the beans. And you know, oh. they, were the, <laughs> they were the guy that ruined it for everyone else. But no, that makes a little more sense. Now nobody can have candy in class. It's all Thanks, you, Paramount. Paramount. <laughs> so after the Supreme Court put a stop to block booking, and other kind of unethical practices that the movie studios were doing in order to turn a profit, they started losing a lot of money in a number of different ways, I'm sure you can imagine. 
that actually do their work and like make better things. Right. Meanwhile, though, keep in mind, this is post Great Depression. This is post World War Two. So people are starting to have an itch to spend some money because now they have money again. Comfortable for once. Yeah. So what happened was people who had the money and also I don't want to forget stuff like the New Deal or the government giving out FHA loans and, you know, things like that. The government was helping people at this time to expand into the American dream. But they started buying houses. They started moving to the suburbs. But the suburbs didn't have the easy access to the hip urban areas with all the cinemas Mm -hmm. you know they weren't downtown anymore and it wasn't really easy to get downtown and we didn't have public transportation back then really the malls weren't out there with the theaters in them yet right so people sought out their entertainment inside the home uh you have your typical nuclear family sitting around you know listening to the radio or the more affluent people would have a television and then as people started getting more and more money they were able to buy more televisions more and more families did have a television and studios saw this and began to scramble to buy an interest in TV production. Now let's go back to what you were talking about B-movie production houses. So it was cheap to make B-movies before Mm -hmm. but now it was cheaper to make TV shows. Right. Yeah, I can follow. They decided that they could use their B-movie divisions to produce TV series which is also how we got actors being contracted to do TV and so these movie studios started to get a majority control in TV production. Now this was happening in the late 40s and early 50s. So we have the 1958-59 television season where eight out of the top 10 shows were Westerns. And in 1960, there were 48 Westerns on TV. 48, Mike. That's a lot of TV. Can you imagine? And TV wasn't even like 24 hours back then, you know? No, no. And there were three channels. Right. Three. So can you imagine 48 Westerns on TV, 30 of them in prime time, three channels. You turn on your TV. Odds are there's going to be a horse. Yeah. (laughs) And then going back to what you were saying about the actors being contracted to TV, that's different than what we think about today too. You know, right now you get a contract to do a TV show, but this was literally actors that work for the studio and they just say, you know what? You're going to be doing random episodes of random TV shows for the next five, six years. Yeah, and Clue Gulliger was the first universal contract player. Uh, We've heard of him. This was his life. Like you said, this is a system that gradually went away. Clue and these guys, it was an era they were a part of that is gone, you know, and Clue talks about how he learned so much about acting doing this. And it makes sense, you know, because you work constantly if you're a contract player. Yeah. You're going Going here, you're going there. You're on all these different shows, making guest appearances everywhere. You're a cowboy one week, you're a doctor the next. You're just running around doing whatever you need to fill in as. Right, and he says that he learned things that he probably couldn't have learned otherwise, and that I think is really valuable. And I mean, I'm not trying to say, oh, actors aren't very good anymore. You know, the, nobody can act. What are you talking about? But it's just a different style, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the major film actors these days, I'm not going to name names, throw anyone under the bus, but. There are people that you like 
see them and you know it's them no matter what the role is. It's like a secondary of what that person is because Mm -hmm. it's just another movie star movie. This is a complaint a lot of actors get these days that maybe happened back then, but they're always playing themselves. While that's kind of true, I think, of any actor, I think that's a kind of dumb complaint sometimes when people throw that out because it's not like you can change who you are entirely unless you're like the Borat guy. (laughs) That's not what acting is. You're always the same person, but you can be doing different roles, learning different things, and that, I think, is what Clue was kind of getting at with this contract experience teaching him a lot. You know, we have character actors, and I think that character actors are probably the most valuable actors that we have. You know, this guy, that guy. You may not know their name. Yeah, people go to movies for the stars a lot of times, but the side characters that steal the show or, you know, just help set things up that really sometimes make those movies more memorable than just another in a line of big star movies. Now, the other thing about Westerns is, now, this is probably the the meat and potatoes of this episode. We are going to be convincing you that Westerns are worthwhile. Westerns impacted culture in a way that is almost unmatched. They taught people values. It's arguable what those values are. Yeah, you can spin it either way, I think. There's certain sects of people still that look at Western stars, I'll name drop John Wayne again, as icons. Not just as like an icon as a star, but as the person you want to be like. You can manipulate that either way based on your own beliefs, as with any piece of fiction or character that you are just picking up off the screen or off a book or something. But there is the ability to use that as a guide, as where you get your values or get your ideas. And it is subjective. Yes. But the thing that Westerns do do is they teach us our history, make us reflect upon what our current politics are at the same time. You know, so we're looking back, but we're also looking forward. As you look at, like I already kind of hinted, as you look at these episodes of these shows, you don't expect 1960s television to be saying something today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the more I looked at these episodes, and I know you had the same experience from the conversations we've had, there'd be moments when I'm just like, wow, that is something that's relevant that actually makes sense to me so even though it's set 150 years ago it still resonates in a way that any media can but sometimes the approach of western just kind of hammers the point home in a way that is effective right they offer us a way to reconsider the past and you know learn from it they help us consider our place in the world they help us look at our anxieties about what is going on in our modern world they use the imagery of the old west to show us basically the pride and the shame that's associated with being an american you know this is a total reflection on the american experience tm there's all sorts of themes that like you said they're completely relevant today there's you know a lot of westerns have to do with manifest destiny and is manifest destiny actually right taking over the land of native peoples also other native american relations progress is a big theme people fighting the railroad coming into town. Mm -hmm. Also, that isolationist perspective again. There's class struggles. There's always some baron that's trying to buy up all the land and the the ranchers have to make a stand against him. There's themes about the meaninglessness of violence. There's all sorts of these things that are absolutely relevant to our modern world and they were doing them forever, you know? The one thing I took away from a couple of these episodes that I never really thought much about but then made sense in the context, cattle thieves. You ever think about 
like cattle thieves are basically people back in the era would just have their cattle out grazing and if someone wanted to start their own farm they would go out and just take those cattle and it, it's such a foreign sounding concept yeah but then you think about society now and everyone trying to get their own and you know make it on their own and survive not on the land but in the society and there are people out there that are just you know well we're gonna take something and make it our own because that's the easiest way to get ahead and we don't care who we're hurting in the process right right that uh dog eat dog mentality exactly. it was cow eat cow mm, <laughs> no michael i think that's mad cow actually yeah, there you go that's what happens when cow eat cow okay you got it i also really enjoy looking at some of these westerns and maybe this is a stretch but i've feel like I've seen westerns where this has been the name of the town. It can be like a purgatory setting where the hmm. people in this small area are in that area and trapped. And it's a fishbowl setting where this society is completely contained and the law is the law, usually represented by one tall man in tint. <laughs> and everything just exists within that little place. You could just imagine there is no other place than these sets. And that is a really simple and effective way of showing a society at its most basic. That's really interesting that you say that because that's something that is carried on in other genres too. I was just thinking about like when you said fishbowl, I was thinking about the show Lost. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that's not a Western at all, but like it fits the same theme. Yeah. You just take the world and make it smaller. Yeah. All the bad, all the good is amplified. That's a better example. I was thinking of that dome show, the Stephen King one. Oh, right. That one's really obvious. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that's the literal fishbowl. So, you know, you got it. Good job. <laughs> but yeah, th there are values that, I mean, obviously Westerns teach us or they try to teach us about things like honesty and integrity and justice and racial tolerance, the benefit of hard work. It, Westerns are pretty much modern morality plays. Mm -hmm. I want to mention The Lone Ranger really, really quickly. Uh, the Lone Ranger was famous for not sticking around for a thank you from the townspeople that he would always save from week to week, which indicated a certain kind of of moral integrity like he put civil responsibility before glory self-heroism yeah. you know like he didn't need a thank you or whatever it seems ridiculous these days like everybody wants that yeah definitely back in the day lenny bruce actually had a bit about it where he called him a schmuck i'm tired of his horse shit now and that's the third time i made a present for him he ran off I don't mind for me, but my ma, she made coffee and cake and everything. That bastard, is he kidding? Was he too good for everybody? He saw the old lady came out, he made coffee and cake, and that schmuck rides off. And he laughed at us, I'm telling you. He went, hi, oh, <laughs> like that. He's no good, I'm telling you. The think look up thank you mask man and you can see that so yeah it's weird these values because you you don't really know who they're for exactly because they can go both ways it's always a gray area mm -hmm. westerns have this reputation of being kind of conservative yes we have gene autry he's famous for having his cowboy code you know there's a code of the cow country it goes something like this it don't take such a lot of laws to keep the rangeland straight our books to write them in, because there's only six or eight. The first one's the welcome sign, written deep in Western hearts. My camp is your camp, and yours is mine in all cow country parks. Treat with respect 
All womanhood, same as you would your sister. Take care of neighbors' strays, you find, and don't call cowboys mister. Shut the pasture gates when passing through, and take in all in all. Be just as rough as you please, but never mean or small. Talk straight, shoot straight, and never break your word to man nor boss. Always kill a rattlesnake and don't ride a sore-backed horse. It don't take law or pedigree to live the best you can. These few is all it takes to be a cowboy and a man. Which can be read as a highly conservative viewpoint. But the thing is, treating everyone honestly and fairly is not bound by politics, you know? So we're going to get into a lot of this, I think. <laughs> so going back, though, just a second to what we were talking about, movie studios making television shows. In the late 40s, early 50s, there were Westerns on TV. Like, the first one was Hopalong Cassidy. Which is not Howdy Doody. No, not Howdy Doody. It's actually... I get that mixed up. <laughs> Okay, yeah, um, it's actually much more popular than Howdy Doody. This was definitely a kid's show. And then you also have Gene Autry doing his kid's show too. So Westerns on TV at the time were considered kids programming. They weren't to be taken seriously. So movie studios wanted Western films to really stand out from television because, I mean, Western films were like an event that adults would go see. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the A and B pictures. Those a lot of times were the big budget A pictures. Right. Now there were B Western too, but John Wayne, Randolph Scott, those were the people that audiences flocked to. Yeah, and they were these huge productions, you know, Technicolor, widescreen format, the whole ordeal, right? I mean, The Searchers is a beautiful film. There's a lot to be said for this. But on TV, the Westerns, like I said, were for kids. And when the studios started doing the B-Westerns as television productions, they knew that they needed to give a little push to get adults to watch westerns in prime time and so and cbs tried to legitimize westerns with gunsmoke okay gunsmoke was a big show too and they got john wayne your favorite john wayne he's my buddy to come and introduce gunsmoke so you have the first episode of gunsmoke with john wayne standing in front of a ranch house not playing a character just being john wayne no he is john wayne he is addressing the camera addressing the audience saying good evening my name's Wayne. Some of you may have seen me before. I hope so. I've been kicking around Hollywood a long time. I've made a lot of pictures out here. All kinds. And some of them have been westerns. And that's what I'm here to tell you about tonight. A western. A new television show called Gunsmoke. No, I'm not in it. I wish I were, though. Because I think it's the best thing of its kind that's come along. I hope you'll agree with me. It's honest, it's adult, it's realistic. So here was this idea of the adult Western, and they became so popular after that. Like, even to the fact of Gene Roddenberry pitching Star Trek as Wagon Train to the Stars. You know, like, so this was a thing. So why don't we start off with the tall man?
Tall Man is brought to you by... Beechnut Peppermint Gum. Reach for real refreshment. Reach for Beechnut Peppermint Gum. Ah, the tall man. So yes, the first major role for Clue was on a television show, 1960, called The Tall Man. What is this show? Here's the brief version. The Tall Man is the story of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Now, you've probably heard these names in westerns. You've probably heard them in folklore or history books. I'm going to give you the quick history version and then tell you what the TV show is about. Okay. According to scholars, aka the internet, what I've come to find about the real Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is that Billy the Kid was a bit of a thief, a bit of a outlaw. The reputation stands that he was maybe not the nicest guy and out to get his own and not really caring about others. Pat Garrett is painted a little more as a hero, but reality doesn't necessarily back that up entirely. Pat Garrett was a legendary sheriff who did end up going after Billy the Kid and, according to legend, killing Billy the Kid. So what we find out looking at Pat the Garrett, Pat the Garrett, (laughs) is he did become a lawman, but he did so after he was basically hired by a rich man who wanted him to get rid of Billy the Kid. And that's what ended up happening. Some versions of the story say that they were friends ahead of time, but that can't really be proven. But Pat Garrett was almost disgraced by the people in his area after he did take down Billy the Kid. He lost re-election as sheriff, ended up getting into a lot of gambling, getting into a lot of the behavior that you would associate with Billy the Kid, up until the point where he lost part of his ranch gambling and then got into a gunfight with the person he lost it to because they wanted to put goats on his land. Goats? So Pat Garrett was killed because of goats. Goats. Because he was that anti-goat. Anti-goat? He was an anti-goat human. So right now I'm sure... How can you possibly be anti-goat? I wish I could ask him, but he's dead. And Billy the Kid's dead, and that's their story. Which doesn't really sound like the most heroic... It's a nice story. It's interesting. Like, I would watch that movie. About goats? Well, I mean, the goats are at the end, you know? It's mostly the Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid story. Oh, because goats are nice. I like goats also. They help you... you, Like, you don't have to mow your lawn. True. Because they eat the grass for you. That seems like that would help there, yeah. I guess, I don't know what Pat Garrett had against goats, but... Goats, as far as I know, do not play into the tall man. And as much as we would love to make this the goat hour. Sorry, I'm really fixated on the goats. Yeah, it's an interesting, like, that's the final straw in Pat Garrett. That, you know what, I've had a rough go, and goats are where I draw the line. Let's have a gunfight. Huh. Like, he must have just been having a bad day, you know? He just didn't think goats were the greatest of all time. I see where you're going there. Very well played. Thank you. Yep, took me a minute, but you're good. (laughs) So the tall man. Let's talk about the TV show version. In this version, Pat Garrett, played by uh, Barry Sullivan is the sheriff and Billy the Kid, played by you might have guessed it, Blue Gulliger. Now they're buddies here. I don't want to say like super chum buddies. The way the show kind of portrays across the board is Pat is wise and older and Billy is young and reckless. But throughout the show, they're portrayed as friends for the most part. They are on the same page primarily. There's no hint of the real life battle between the two. I don't even know if it was necessarily a battle from what the history books say, but you all can look that up. And Pat Garrett, or Patrick, as Billy would call him in the show. Yeah, I love that. I love that Billy just keeps calling him Patrick. I love it. It's one of the first great clue moments is that first episode when he just keeps saying, Well, I'm much obliged to you there, Patrick. Patrick, 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 Patrick. He calls him Patrick over and over again, and he's the only person that does that, which is obviously a little bit of a symbol of his rebelliousness. Yeah. So Patrick and Billy are 
buddies, but Pat is always kind of the mentor to Billy. So The Tall Man premiered September 10th, 1960 on NBC, Saturday nights, 8.30 p.m., following Bonanza, hugely popular show. Bonanza actually was moved to Sunday nights in the fall of 1961, and unfortunately, the tall man's ratings fell because of that. That happens all the time, like even TV now, you you have your your block programming, TGIF, it's like supposed to be- Must-see TV. Right, you know, like, my God, that, that time slot. Remember Between Friends and Seinfeld was like the thing, like the time yeah, slot to be at? Yeah, different shows there, seeing what would stick. <laughs> right. So anyway, uh, yeah, Bonanza moved and the ratings for The Tall Man fell, unfortunately. Uh, we will get to the fate of The Tall Man series here in a bit. But this was a critical time in Clue's career. Now, before he, he took this show. He sat in his car with his agent for like three hours discussing whether or not he should take this show or wait for movie roles because he was getting a few movie roles during this time too. Like they were kind of few and far between. We'll be talking about 1960s cinema on a later episode. There were things like Paul Newman movie winning about car racing. There was The Killers which was a big one. Um, there's another movie called And Now Miguel which I don't think is very well known at all but uh, we'll talk about that later. So the debate was, like I said, take this TV show or wait for movie roles. And ultimately he decided to take the TV show because, I mean, it's steady work. He's got a wife. He's got a baby. He, you know, needs the income. Can you blame him? You know? Oh, yeah. I imagine it's also a little bit of a, we talked about the contract player status and just jumping from one show to the next to have a chance to, oh, hey, you're going to be the same character for at least 20 episodes. It gives him a chance to really dig in a little bit and create something that's more his own and we can stick with a little bit and I think an actor would want to have more of a you know chance to show how they can do a character over time than just hey you're gonna be here for one episode and you'll have an arc in this episode but then you're off somewhere else so yeah he had this opportunity to take this role and be Billy the Kid for a couple of years other things that are cool about this show that have to do with Clue there was a lot of promotional tie-ins for the tall man like you could buy a Billy the Kid Pat Garrett gun, I don't know, what do you call those things? Like the belts? Gun belt? Is that right? Yeah. Um, that have the holsters and stuff. You know, you could buy those for your kids and play like you were them. Also, another huge, or to me, huge promotional thing is that Clue Gulliger recorded a couple of 45s. Yes, that's right. Clue Gulliger sings, everybody. That is hard to imagine. I mean, I've seen it at this point. We've discussed it, so I can confirm its existence. Yeah, that is not <laughs> what you picture from Clue. No. I even thinking about that last episode we covered from a whisper to a scream and there's a scene in that movie where he kind of sings a little in a moment of creepiness like it was meant to be an uncomfortable singing but in behind the scenes interviews about that movie there's a mention from clue saying you know i had to sing this song and i just kind of came up with it i was not a musician (laughs) so it's curious as we looked back and we're like wait a minute clue now later in his life is saying you know i didn't have any musical stuff but when he was working on this show that actually made him a recorded artist and he performed on American Bandstand. Right! The clue, come on. I'm not trying to call you a liar. Uh, he's just, you know, he doesn't want to show off. Can you imagine being Clue and having to, like, explain <laughs> how much you've done and how good you are to people? Right. I mean, that's got to be a little exhausting. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But I also know Clue played the French horn when he was younger, too. Oh. So, come on now. Come on. That's a deep find. I didn't have that info. <laughs> 
Yeah. You guys listen to one other podcast that tells you that if Clue played the French horn, then <laughs> you're not gonna. That's us. We got that covered. <laughs> this is our exclusive. <laughs> yes, this is the moment when it's like, by the way, you'll never hear this on another podcast until someone steals it from us. But we're first. Can I do a first here? Is this the internet? Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, fine. First. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so he recorded some 45s. He recorded a version of Tennessee Waltz, which is actually kind of a hard song to sing, Clue. So good job. Yeah. Way to be, buddy. <laughs> There's a song that's kind of a love ballad for Billy the Kid. There's also a song called Chiquita Mia. There was an episode of The Tall Man I was watching where there was a woman in it and he calls her Chiquita Mia. And I was like, oh, oh, he's going to sing. He's going to sing the song because she is a Spanish dancer and Mm -hmm. she has a man with her playing the guitar. And I'm like, oh, please, please. This is is the moment. Please, Clue, sing Chiquita Mia. He did not. (laughs) unfortunately but i yeah oh man that would have been great but yeah he he was on american bandstand you said that like that's crazy clue gulliger performed a song on american bandstand along with the band who did the watusi okay so like this is history (laughs) this is pop culture history and it's amazing that is an uneven 
double or not double feature because it's not movie yeah. but you know that's an interesting combination of uh-huh. so everybody out there who knows clue as burt from the return of the living dead who knows clue as dude's dad from freddy's revenge know he was on american bandstand okay with dick clark in the 60s okay that's impressive very cool but aside from clue singing there is man i just want to say first of all i love western music like this is sort of a passion of mine singing cowboys like old back in the day i love it you know a lot of people confuse country with western now you have country western or it is actually country and western there are two different things western is completely different sound than just country music and even back in this time period western was so different country a lot of times meant the appalachian folk tunes like that kind of hillbilly stuff Mm -hmm. and then western is this you know home home on the range cowboy music completely different a lot of times western even had this subgenre called western swing which kind of had a almost hawaiian influence to it so i love this kind of music i don't know how familiar you are with this but there's a lot of cowboy ballads out there now there's have you heard of marty robbins I do know more. Okay. About. Well, he did a lot of gunfighter ballads, and he actually mm-hmm. did a song, the folk song about Billy the Kid, uh, one of his more famous ones. But Western music is a huge part of this time period. What's really cool about The Tall Man is not only did it feature Western music, it featured this kind of really wacky Western music. Wacky is the word I would use. <laughs> yeah. The background music is definitely one of the most interesting things. About Absolutely. This show. The composer who did the score, who did the theme song, everything about this show is a man named Juan Garcia Esquivel. Now, Esquivel is famous or infamous, maybe, for doing space age bachelor pad music. See, and that's more in my style. <laughs> okay. It's really hard to describe other than that. It is precisely space age bachelor pad music. And in the mid-90s, there was a resurgence of this because Rhino Records put out a compilation of Esquivel's music. Now, unfortunately, this doesn't involve anything from The Tall Man, but it would have been cool if it did. So this sort of 60s swing thing that was happening in the mid-90s had a lot to do with Esquivel and some other things, you know, like Austin Powers or whatever. And Clue is quoted as saying that Esquivel's score was beautiful, and I agree with oh, that. absolutely. It's so unique because, I mean, The Tall Man's a Western, and here's some technical info that's going to come back into play in our discussion a little bit. This is a half-hour time slot in 1960 in black and white, and it's got this kind of rousing theme at the beginning of every episode with the drums in the back and accentuating the two characters meeting on the street, you know, really just setting up every episode of, hey, here's who we're here to deal with. But then throughout each episode is just sometimes bizarre, random, unique music supplementing everything that's going on. Some people have said it doesn't match the show and that it's just kind of out there and I don't know if they're necessarily wrong, but it definitely gives the show an entirely different feel than you would expect. It is not dope. Yeah, totally. And there are scenes where it's like a gunfight, you know, it's like a serious gunfight. And the music is like this kind of crazy, uplifting, sort of like fun day at the park music. Yeah. So um, it is kind of weird. And yeah, there is a criticism like saying that maybe Esquivel wrote this music without actually watching the show. Because you know how uh, composers will do that. They'll have the show on and then they write the music as they're watching it to fit the scenes. And he just wasn't having it that day. 
you know what, you guys are going to take this music and make it fit. Maybe not, but, you know, also, maybe he just didn't care because, yeah. I mean, he's Esquivel and he can do what he wants as far as yeah. I'm concerned. It's definitely one of the things that stuck out the most about the show alongside, of course, Clue. I don't want to criticize too much, but it's a tale of two characters. Patrick, as played by Barry Sullivan, is a bit of a dry character. Mm. He is your extremely standard lawman who stands for justice, who stands for what's right, who's by the book talking about what the law is and what it means. And, you know, Billy the Kid kind of doing the, well, you know, laws are just put there to mess with people. And Pat Garrett is the character who tries to explain, no, the law is to make everyone equal. The law is to make things right. And believes that kind of thing. As the show goes, a lot of times the debate becomes, is he right or is Billy who just wants to do his thing right? You can guess from the title who wins out a lot of the time. And I've noticed as I watched a few episodes that there's definitely kind of a few different types of episodes of this show and a type of experience for Clue's Billy the Kid character that changes throughout the show. But Pat Garrett is the constant. He's always the same. He's unflinching, unchanging. He is the law. Going back to some of the themes we were talking about that Westerns in general do, I mean, there were Western films that had some of these same thematic elements that these TV shows also had. Yeah, going on with what I was saying about Patrick, it definitely immediately reminds me of Gary Cooper and High Noon, which is probably one of my top favorite Western films, because it is that man against the world who believes what he believes, and other people try and get him to cut corners, and he's not having it. Right, and High Noon is one of those that has a massive gray area. Like, you have people on both sides of the political spectrum championing this movie for their own values. You know, you have, yeah, John Wayne, you know, like Mr. Conservative John Wayne is said to have said that High Noon was the most unpatriotic movie he had ever seen, but it was a favorite of George W. Bush. So there are things that you can fit into your own political philosophies about High Noon in a lot of ways. Westerns, actually. The actual writer of High Noon was one of the screenwriters who had to go testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. You know, so he actually wrote this film, or the script that he was writing at the time, like, morphed into this allegory for McCarthyism. I mean, that's like a really liberal thing, right? Yeah, he was writing kind of the experience of being on your own and being criticized by the masses, but knowing where you're at is where you need to be. Right. It's such a unique film from that standpoint standpoint. But like you said, then the other side, you can take it as the conservative, I'm doing what the law says, that's it, that's where I stand, and I'm going to stand up against the people who are giving in. There are people who take the conservative, kind of like those who hold up John Wayne, and look at it as the, you need to stand your ground and be what you believe in. And that's how you can, you know, manipulate it the other way. So you think, though, that like Gary Cooper in High Noon, who had sort of this ambiguous thing going on, and not really ambiguous, but he was troubled, let's say, about what he should be doing in his town, there's a correlation to Pat Garrett in The Tall Man. I think the Pat Garrett character here is a little more of the conservative side of Gary Cooper's Will Kane in that movie, because he is the just by the book, this is the law, this is what it means, lawman. But then the flip side of that is he's also giving chances to Billy the 
kid. This version of Billy the Kid is not a completely despised outlaw, but he's not trusted by the masses. You'd see episodes where it's either Billy is kind of wanting to do criminal things and has to be reminded or given the chance to make the right choice. One episode I watched early in season one has a love interest of Billy getting murdered and his quest is to hunt the people down and kill them. And he's got Pat by his side the whole time saying, look, I know you're mad, but the law is this. This is what's right. This is what we need to do. And you'd have these episodes where Billy the Kid is having to kind of prove that he's learning, that he's doing good. Would you say that Billy was a charismatic character in the show? Absolutely. I would say Clue's version of Billy the Kid is definitely the more kind of informal a lot of the show is around him finding different women or wanting to go do things just because it's fun. <laughs> right, okay. Against Pat's advice. Of course, that leads him to then kind of in some of the other episodes being criticized or maybe even turned into a villain by townspeople. There's an episode where Pat Garrett gets shot and the lawman he's with, in this episode a special guest appearance, or at least he wasn't a special guest yet at the time, but now he looks familiar to everyone. Leonard Nimoy plays a uh, law officer who then believes the person who shot Pat was Billy the Kid and is on the trail hunting him down. But it wasn't Billy. But it wasn't Billy, of course. And Pat knew, of course. That's another thing that Westerns have a lot is the prejudice of the townspeople against villains, you know, or they have this preconceived notion of who the villain is based on past events Mm -hmm. or, you know, just assumptions about them. There's some episodes of the Virginian that have a lot to do with that. There is also something huge about, you know, speaking of perceptions of people, folklore and the folklore surrounding these characters even like within their own worlds you know Mm -hmm. like we have folklore for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid how many people have played Billy the Kid over the course of decades there's so many representations of Billy the Kid there's like he's in freaking Bill and Ted you know Mm -hmm. and every every representation of him is kind of similar you know I I don't want to compare like Emilio Estevez to Clue Gulliger you know but there's this thing of Billy the Kid that is kind of reckless kind of winking at you while he's talking you know like that kind of thing and there's something i think becomes this legendary thing the legends of the west is a big topic and eventually in the 60s was something that movies were addressing my favorite john wayne movie and one that is not necessarily regarded by some of his fans as the best is the man who shot liberty valance ah yeah that's a movie where john wayne is a hero but he's not the hero james stewart plays a more liberal man trying to you know stop some of the violence and avoid confrontation and ends up in the movie getting into a gunfight and in a way becoming sort of a legend himself based on that. And as the story unfolds, there's a great moment where a character who is a reporter, the one, you know, chronicling all of this and finding out what really happened, realizes everything and decides that the story is more important than the reality. Uh And the great line that this reporter gives that kind of sticks in my head talking about Westerns in general is that when the legend becomes fact, you should print the legend. And that's where we're at with Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett here. I also wanted to piggyback on you bringing in Emilio Estevez, who played Billy the Kid in the Young Guns films, because there's a quick jump from the tall man to Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett in Young Guns. Oh, really? Man, I haven't seen Young Guns in a long time. I actually haven't either, but I was digging for Billy the Kid info, (laughs) and there was a unique down-the-line connection here. So Barry Sullivan, who played Pat Garrett here, went on to appear in the 70s Sam Peckinpah movie Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, playing the role of John Chisholm, who was the man who hired Pat Garrett to track Billy the Kid. 
Kid. Oh. That movie starred James Coburn as Pat Garrett. And when it came down to Young Guns 2, Chisholm was in that movie, played by James Coburn. What? Who hired Pat Garrett to kill Billy the Kid in Young Guns 2. Oh. So it, like, passed down the line. Pat Garrett became Chisholm twice. Who played Pat Garrett in Young Guns 2? I can't think of his name. The guy from Manhunter. Uh, William Peterson. William Peterson. The guy from CSI. Oh. And I don't Manhunter. watch those shows. The Michael Wait, Mann the Michael Man- Man- movie? The guy that played Will Graham. Yeah. Oh, okay. That guy. He played Pat Garrett to track down Emilio Estevez. So, sometime he needs to play Chisholm hiring a Pat Garrett to kill a Billy the Kid somewhere. Right. So that's what we're due for now. Yes. Any day now. He's still out there. It could happen. William Peterson to play Chisholm who hires... The next... It's like Highlander almost. What? Okay, maybe it's not like Highlander. I maybe just wanted to mention Highlander. You love Highlander. I really enjoy Highlander. Let's, that's not really a Western though, so. No. No. I think I, well, no, okay, never mind. <laughs> yeah, this is, <laughs> Clue's not in any Highlanders. Let's just leave that. I was going to say that, I was going to say that I like Beastmaster more than I like Highlander, but I don't even know why I would compare them. Yeah, I don't know either. Whatever, it'll be. There can be only one. But there's more than one movie. Yeah. And there's a series. It's kind of like Billy the Kid. There's only one Billy the Kid, but there's many Billy the Kids. Mm. Billy the Children. There's only one Billy the Kid that lives in my heart, and his name is Clue Gulier. Right, and he was the version of Billy the Kid that was a good guy and could deal with the oddities of time travel with the greatest of ease. Oh, wait, no. That's a different Billy the Kid. That's a different one. I get it. <sighs> okay. This is not the Keanu Reeves podcast. Oh, you're right. Neither is it the Eric Roberts podcast. This no. is the Clue Gulier podcast. Michael. I'm back on track. Sorry. Okay. You know, you mentioned the newspaper man in Liberty Valance. Like, it's sort of interesting, you know, in real life, back then there were journalists who followed around these outlaws and wrote about them at the time, you know, so there really was some guy following around Billy the Kid, writing about stuff. Telling his tale. What? You know his name? No, I said he was telling his tale. Oh. (laughs) I don't know why I thought you said a name. No, I don't know his name. (laughs) But that's how we have these legends, like I started off talking about of, you know, Pat and Billy and their potential friendship, but we don't know, and the dying and the goats and all of that. (laughs) Potential friendship. Maybe they were lovers. No, they weren't. Let's leave that for a different podcast. (laughs) As I mentioned, there's like three different types of episodes about Billy the Kid on the Tall Man. Pat's always the same. There's the episodes where Billy has to show that he's good. There's the episodes where Billy, like, gets pretty much turned into a villain and then has to prove himself. But some of the more interesting ones I found are ones where Billy is actively trying to be like Pat, to be a better person, and it just maybe doesn't quite work. There's a performance <laughs> in it that's kind of awkward. But an episode where Pat and Billy find a Native American been beaten and left for dead, and they save him, and they bring him into town. And Billy is just convinced he's gonna, like, get this guy a job and get him set up, and he's just gonna be part of the town. And everyone is, of course, skeptical, because there was a bias against Native Americans at the time. Patrick, who's our good guy, who's, like, Mr. What's Right, actually says he's not a town Indian. Wait, he's not a town Indian? He's not a town Indian. He's the kind of Indian who can't be in a town, which is a sentence you would not hear on TV today. Like, that show would get some letters. (laughs) And that's our good guy saying that. But Billy is convinced he's going to make this guy like normal part of society and get him set up. Uh-huh. And there are a few of these episodes where it's like Billy has his head in the right place, but he's too idealistic. He's maybe too trusting or maybe just even cocky about what he can do and trying to pay it forward for what Pat has done to him. Hmm. And it sets up some really interesting conflicts there too. I get the impression that the writers of The Tall Man had to 
come up with different ways to make Billy sort of, um, like, to bring out the bad in his character, right. I guess. Because you want him to be Billy the Kid, but you're also putting him as kind of a side hero. Yeah. I mean, he's almost Robin to Batman here, although that's a few years later. Right. But he's like a rogue Robin. <laughs> he's Robin after dark. Oh, I'd like to see that. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there was an episode where Billy got a concussion somehow, and in his medicated state, started doing uh, crimes and things, <laughs> which is pretty hilarious. And I feel like uh, I've seen that on other TV soap shows. opera. Like a character gets amnesia. Yeah. Or yeah. Like, forgets who they are and assumes the role of like a you know villain. Right. I mean, it's like direct storyline of like passions. Ooh. See, I don't watch that. Well, I mean, that was, it was very short-lived, okay. Passions. It was a very weird soap opera. <laughs> I think you would have liked it, actually. Is Clue on it? No, uh, no. Don't. I wish. I wish Clue was on everything. Well, obviously. So, The Tall Man, it's a unique setup where, yeah, your hero is got to be your villain sometimes, or just be kind of at fault at times and it's a cool role for clue because it really does give him a lot of room to maneuver while pat garrett is just i'm pat garrett hello yeah i'm pat garrett i'm, I'm the law <laughs> you better stick with me because i'm the law well, i don't want to be the law pat but you should be the law okay it's not that simple i'm making it sound like really dry <laughs> It's not entirely dry. I have some funny stories about the tall man. Ooh, I'm down for funny stories. <laughs> okay. The first one is, so they were filming one day, as you would a television show. Correct. That's the only way to do it. As the scene was playing out, the actors were like, wait, this dialogue sounds kind of familiar. Where have we heard this before? Hmm. So the producer called over the screenwriter or the uh, the teleplay writer, whatever you want to call it, television writer. And they were like, dude, where did you get this story? Like, wh- what is this? And he's all like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is actually, you know, I wrote this based on the story that I wrote for uh, the script to this movie called Winchester 73, which is a movie starring James Stewart. And uh, pretty popular movie. Like, of the westerns James Stewart did as a lead, that's probably the biggest one. Came out in 1950. Like, you would think he would know not to just plagiarize himself on something that well-known, right? Well, he was all like, no, it's cool. I mean, I wrote it. You know, it's, it's fine. I don't care. I mean, we can do it again. Whatever. And then the producer's like, um, no, you don't actually own the script. We can't do this. They had to rewrite that whole scene. Like, they at least changed to a different type of gun? Do an asylum version of Winchester 7? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know any other guns. Colt 45? That's a movie with Randolph Scott, though. Oh. Man, why do I know that? <laughs> I can't believe I live in Texas and I don't know anything about guns. Eh, you're better off. You know you can carry a sword in Texas. Like, you can open carry a katana sword if you want to. You know who else carried a sword? Who? Highlander. Oh. <laughs> Not relevant, Mike. <laughs> The other story I have here is kind of funny. So Nancy Davis, you know, Nancy Davis eventually became Nancy Reagan. First lady of the United States, Nancy Reagan. She played Pat Garrett's girlfriend for a little while on The Tall Man. And Ronald Reagan. Heard of him? Yeah, yeah. I think a few of us have. (laughs) He visited the set while Nancy was filming. And Clue tells the story about how he was having a hard time getting on his horse. This is kind of hard to believe because Clue was so such a skilled rancher but this was a horse that my god i want to say was the horse that randolph scott actually used all the time i could be wrong you said randolph scott put him in your head you put him in my head i could be wrong so you guys can fact check me on this so the horse was just not used to anybody else and clue was having a hard time mounting the horse and he tried for about you know seven or eight times and eventually just kind of fell off and just laid on the ground because he was i'm tired this is enough i've fallen off this horse eight times i'm just gonna lay here 
for a minute. You can only keep getting up on the horse, like the saying says. But Right. <laughs> right. So uh, Ronald Reagan comes running over and he's like, Clue, Clue, let me tell you a secret. Let me tell you how I do this. And Clue's like, yeah, okay, fine, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you asshole. <laughs> so Ronald Reagan is telling him about how he would act like he's starting to get on the horse. And then he would yell, cut, and they would cut. And then like somebody would help him up on the horse and they would start rolling then at that point. So it was like he was getting up on the horse and then cut and then he's, you know, on the horse. Hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't actually show him getting up on the horse. I wonder if audience has ever caught on. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And so Clue's like, thanks. <laughs> you know? And then Clue got up on the damn horse on his own. That's right. God damn it. That's how I believe that story ends. <laughs> but he says he wanted to tell Reagan to shove it, basically. Like, come on, dude. Clue's a relationship with Reagan is, uh, you know, he worked with them later in The Killers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're going to be talking about Reagan a lot. But uh, his relationship with him was uh, not too good, I would say. I mean, from what I have read, I'm not saying that they were like at each other's throats or anything. Like, that was actually Lee Marvin and Ronald Reagan were not buddies at all. They probably didn't hang out on the weekend. <laughs> right. Clue was always like, yeah, Reagan, he's a real good guy. He closed all the Indian schools. <laughs> you know, which is true. And, you know, Clue's a part of the Cherokee Nation. So, I mean, that's something that's really important to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it should be important to all of us, honestly. Anyway, so Reagan's kind of a tool. Let's say that. Fair. So the tall man was on for just a couple years. We mentioned the ratings mm-hmm. were lower, but they weren't too bad. Why did this show stop? Like, it seems like a show that people would keep watching. Well, that's an interesting story. The Mike Congress actually shut down production of The Tall Man, which I think maybe was the first time this happened. There was a congressional order to stop The Tall Man. And the reason why they wanted it canceled was because they felt it was too violent and only showed Billy as a hero, which, you know, children are watching. You can't make the gunman good guy right like billy the kid is this you know obviously he's an outlaw he's a villain you know he's someone not to be looked up to pat garrett's the role model but billy the kid no and like they are portraying him as this kind of lovable goof in in some ways clue of course has some things to say about that as well he laments that they canceled the tall man based on violence basically and then you have the same time there was a show that he was actually on the untouchables going on that was like way more violence than the tall man ever was you know that was a mob show but yeah i mean they just thought that the tall man was not good for the children so they pressured nbc to take it off the air and then they did and the final episode aired on may 26 1962 that episode was actually trivia directed by Sidney pollock but there was no mention of the in real life final gun battle between Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett and nothing about goats whatsoever. It's disappointing. No goats. No goats. Well, and it's interesting, the first episode, they make the point very clear, hey, we're equally good as gunmen. Yeah. Good thing we don't have to have to face off with each other. <laughs> and that kind of is a running theme throughout the show, like, uh-huh. hey, good thing we don't have to fight each other. Yeah, I remember watching that first episode and I was like, oh man, <laughs> if they only knew. Right. This is Lincoln, New Mexico Territory in 1880, as it was seen through the eyes of one man. His name was Pat Garrett. He was an officer of the law. He was a man who never backed down from anything or anyone in his life, and he had only one weakness. His love for a half-wild boy whom he regarded almost as a brother. The boy was William H. Bonney, known as Billy the Kid, and Pat Garrett knew how it must end for one of them if their friendship ever failed. Good shooting. 
Billy. I didn't want to let you earn that hundred bucks too easy, you know. Well, you're gonna make it hard for me, Billy? Your turn, Billy. Yeah, well, I'm much obliged to you there, Patrick, for making it so easy for me. They did know, but clearly chose to ignore and just do their own thing, which, hey, that's Hollywood. <laughs> that's Hollywood. And now we come to the Virginian. <laughs> which was hugely popular and was an enormous deal for Westerns on television. This show was so impactful in so many different ways. It is impossible to talk about television during this time without mentioning The Virginian. So Mike, why don't you tell us what is this show? The Virginian is to me kind of the evolution of the TV Western. We talked about The Tall Man and we mentioned it was a short show. It was a half hour time slot. So each episode without commercials, 25 minutes telling a story and moving on. It was a black and white show and a very small scale, small sets, a lot of the same things you'll see over there. The Virginian was kind of a response to movies at the time. We've talked about how movies and TV were competing for the audience. And when westerns went to TV, the westerns in cinema changed. We talked about widescreen, we talked about color, bigger casts. You know, instead of just John Wayne, you would see movies like How the West Was Won with a huge ensemble cast. Longer running times that would be a big event. So Hollywood was fighting back against themselves, in a way, by making these bigger productions. The next step for TV, obviously, was to make their own bigger productions. Mm -hmm. Which leads to The Virginian, a color western, a 90-minute time slot. So basically a feature-length film almost every single episode. You know, we talked about the small world of westerns, and this still has that to an effect, but there are multiple characters, multiple storylines. Mm -hmm. You can have different leads in different episodes. The Virginian is your title character, played by James Drury, but at the same time, he is living on this ranch with all these other characters. Trampus, played by Doug McClure, made famous partially by The Simpsons, even though he was never on it. One half of <laughs> right, legendary right. actor Troy McClure was based on Doug. Right, him and Troy Donahue. Yep, and and all these different characters on this ranch have their own moments where they lead these episodes mm -hmm. and really make it this grand scale world, almost like a soap opera, where there's more possibilities. There's more going on. There's a bigger story. It's color. They were fighting back against the movies by being more like them. What's interesting about that is that not every episode of The Virginian even has The Virginian in it. You know, there are some episodes that, I mean, he's in it for one and not seen again or there's somewhere he's really not even in it there's somewhere the entire episode revolves around him there's some episodes where Doug McClure is Trampus he's not in it he's the other major character like he and James Drury were the only two actors who were in all seasons I don't want to say there was a revolving cast but of course when you have a show that's on nine years there's going to be casting changes but those two guys were on it the entire time and that's another reason why this show was so important or 
or you know as far as like what it did for television is that it gave an opportunity to have storylines that varied really it didn't have to be just these main actors the entire time or it didn't have to be just the guest stars the entire time because there were shows that focused on each episode's guest stars every time where like the main players were just side characters kind of you know in a way like wagon train let's just say wagon train was about a well a wagon train you know like this group of guys who would guide different people down the pathway to the west so like it was whoever the guest stars were they were in the wagon train trying to make their way out west and episodes were more about them than they were the guys running the wagon train and of course you know they had parts yeah interaction between them and these people but they're always dealing with someone different right and i guess i can talk about clue actually on wagon train he did an episode and this is a really great episode actually where he plays a guy who is very manipulative he's kind of a con man he's conniving he actually kills a a guy in this episode Yeah, he's a fink. Well, maybe he's a fink. (laughs) Sure. He's a Civil War vet, and he got a Medal of Honor in the Civil War for uh, killing a bunch of people. So this episode focuses on him, but the thing is, there's this philosophy through it of what makes a man a killer and the guys who run the wagon train actually have the conversation of you know some men get excited about killing the same way they would get excited about women if you catch my drift so this is the character that clue is playing in this episode so it's very complicated and you know that got me thinking westerns are for thinking people Mm -hmm. if you think of westerns as just really simple and that there's nothing to them you're wrong (laughs) you're just wrong right. i'm sorry there are those out there in any genre you'll find a story that you just look at i'm like okay they did not make this for us to think about they just made it to be a piece of entertainment true true but westerns to me are for thinking people but they're kind of disguised as not mm-hmm. you can enjoy them without thinking about philosophy but it's another level of enjoyment at least for me yeah i definitely see that in a lot of western movies a favorite of mine from the late 50s that kind of fits into this day of the outlaw it is a movie where it looks like it's just going to be a showdown between two men over a woman and as the showdown is literally about to happen they do this great moment where it's roll the bottle down the bar and when the bottle crashes that's when we're going to duel and as the bottle's rolling down the bar a whole nother band of outlaws comes in to take over of course then it becomes the what's important we had this feud now we have to deal with something else what are these people doing here and it becomes something of a morality tale of all right i'm a gunman but i gotta change because of the situation adapt which is life you know you'd have your plan and something else happens and you have your morals and something else happens and you have to adapt and figure out what's important to you and i think that is pretty common in westerns high noon like we mentioned already That's not just one man versus killers. That's one man determining why he's doing what he's doing why it's important and trying to teach that. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's in tons of Westerns, like 310 to Yuma. That's a huge deal of that too. Mm -hmm. Knowing what you're fighting for and what's worth fighting for. With the Virginian, there were so many complex storylines and that really hadn't been done on television before it. So that's one reason it was super important. The Virginian was actually a novel and it was written by Owen Wister in 1902. And can I get a little literary nerdish here for a second? Do you mind? Go for it. This novel, it kind of started the Western novel. And the Western novel was the thing that represented more of a 
masculine perspective on things. It was a secular reaction to this genre of literature called the sentimental novel, which was basically celebrating domesticity, like women in the home. Like you have little women, you have Uncle Tom's cabin, stuff like that. It's like all about moral authority, basically. That kind of gave way to Jane Austen Mm -hmm. a little later on. Like she sort of satirized it when she started writing like Pride and Prejudice and uh, Sense and Sensibility was a big one. I'm not a huge Jane Austen fan, so I'm not going to go into that. But anyway, this is what exists. But Western novels were definitely the antithesis of that. They contrasted this domestic fiction by denouncing the civilized worlds that were built by these other novels. And they glorified this rugged image of a cowboy, courageous men unrestrained by women and family life, a romanticized mysterious man. And the Virginian, that's his only name. He's always only referred to as the Virginian in this novel in the movie adaptations of the Virginian because there were several before this TV show. There was uh, a couple of silent films, one done by Cecil B. DeMille. There was another adaptation by Paramount done in 1929, which starred Gary Cooper as the Virginian. Later on, 1946, Paramount made it again with Joel McRae as the Virginian. So there were a lot of adaptations of this story, which differed a little bit from the series. For instance, in all of these movies and the novel, novel, Trampus, Doug McClure's character in the show, was a villain. He was a bad guy. But in the show, he's a good guy. He's on the side of the Virginian. He's one of the ranch hands. Kind of like the tall man. How this made it to TV was it was first a pilot. There was a show on NBC called Decision. And what that was is basically a weekly series that is a showcase for different pilots. And if they were popular enough, they would be picked up for series. Now, I don't really know how they judged this back then. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know. Did you have to rotary dial in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The call in line. Press one for Virginian. Yeah. <laughs> there were no uh, NBC hotlines back then, I don't think. But... No, you, you couldn't tweet the hashtag. <laughs> so every Sunday night, this would be on and they would have a different pilot, which kind of got me thinking, are TV movies actually pilots? You, you have all these made-for-TV movies. Were they actually TV pilots? that just never made it for consideration. I think I've heard of that happening. I feel like that's a thing. (laughs) I can't give you an example off the top of my head, but yeah, I I suppose if you make a pilot and it doesn't stick, you just say, well, we got a movie. Right? (laughs) In this version of The Virginian, James Drury did play him, so keep that in mind. But it did fail. Virginian not picked up at this point. So remember how we talked about movie studios, made TV shows? We've been talking about that the entire episode. Yes, I remember. I'm paying attention. Okay. <laughs> Check mark. In the 1950s, NBC was changing a bit. Now, the former ABC president came on to be the head of programming for NBC in 1956. Later, he became president of NBC in 1958. This kind of shook up things a little bit at NBC, understandably. He decided to cut back on in-house production and increase the ties with the outside film companies. So MCA Universal became a major source of their programming. Remember who Clue Gulliger was contracted with? Universal. Got it. Right. This is really interesting to me. MCA had represented all the old radio stars. So you have guys like Jack Benny, Fred Allen. They had their radio shows that were lifted and put onto television once TV became a more popular medium. Mm-hmm. And they became the backbone of NBC at the time. But the thing is, NBC didn't actually own these 
contracts. MCA did. So if MCA got mad at NBC for whatever reason, they could pull this programming and put it on another network, which is what they did. They totally did that. MCA made a deal with CBS that took all the comics away, like Jack Benny, all those guys took them away and they sold them to CBS. After that, NBC was really careful to stay loyal to NCA because this hurt them a lot. Mm -hmm. Additionally, the deciding factor that gave birth to the Virginian series was that MCA moved Wagon Train from NBC to ABC in 1962. So NBC needed to fill this gap in their programming. And they needed a Western. Maybe not necessarily. They just needed something. Okay. So president of NBC calls up Frank Price. Now Frank Price is the same producer who worked on The Tall Man. And since he was successful with that, I mean mostly, right? Until the stupid government. Right. Successful in other ways too. Right. NBC had a lot of faith in Frank Price. They called him up and they asked him, hey, we need something for this time slot and you can basically do whatever you want. Now the Virginian at this point and probably now was in public domain. That's why there were so many adaptations of it. So Frank Price was like, you know, I really had a good time with James Drury doing this Virginian pilot that never got picked up. I think I want to try that again. And they were like, yeah, okay, go for it. So they did. And it was this huge gamble to them because like conceptually, this was huge. Frank Price was like, okay, we're going to make a movie. Every week. Every week, you know, and like show reruns during the week too. So I mean, this was a huge time slot. Like they'd show the movie and then like a couple days later, rerun another one. So Virginia was always on. So this was a huge gamble and it had, I mean, it's not cheap. No. (laughs) You know, like you said, it's the 90 minute format. It's got huge production value. They filmed on 35 millimeter. Like that's enormous. And they got a huge cast. I mean, they've got bigger sets. Everything is bigger. The Virginian, after watching The Tall Man, just feels gigantic. Yeah, yeah, totally. You have veteran actor Lee J. Cobb coming on to play Judge Garth. That's a huge deal. According to Clue, Lee J. Cobb was not interested in television at all and hated the idea of the Virginian. (laughs) So there's that. Oh, also, by the way, according to Clue, Doug McClure was a volleyball player from Hawaii. So I I don't know. I couldn't find anything to back that up. So I, I don't know. I don't know, but he was like, yeah, here's this guy, Doug McClure. He's like a really good actor, but also, you know, he came from Hawaii and he's a volleyball player. So that's even more surprising that he's a good actor. (laughs) Like what? All right, Clue. He's not a rancher. Maybe Clue had a little bit of an axe to grind there. No, I don't know. I don't know. know. Axe to grind, maybe just having fun with him, I'm sure. Um, I want to tell you a secret. I think that Clue Gulliger might have a very vivid imagination. Oh, that might happen. So Frank Price got this show and he wanted it to be important. He wanted it to have themes, we'll say, and that is why it is important. Virginia ran from 1963 to 1968, nine seasons of television. In season three, we're introduced to a new lead character, or at least one of the lead characters, Emmett Riker, played by Clue Gulliger. But that was not the first time he was on the show. No, it wasn't. There were a couple episodes in season one, season two, where Clue was a guest star. And this was not uncommon like we were talking about contract players Mm -hmm. you know you can be on a show more than once playing different people it doesn't really matter you know you're an actor for hire and here's your job Yep, wagon train he played five different characters right so one episode is clue who is playing the brother of a man who is accused of murder and he's an outlaw himself and he's all scruffy looking and cute (laughs) but he's tough too he's cute and tough yeah much like clue that's easy casting (laughs) 
Totally. That episode has a lot to do with preconceived notions of the townspeople. Clue and his brothers and their cousins and uncles are trying to get their brother busted out of jail. Or not busted out of jail. They're trying to get him released from jail because he's been accused of murder and he's up for execution. The jury has decided that he's guilty. And now they're just waiting for sentencing from Judge Garth. So the episode is him trying to get him out of jail. And the premise is that the townspeople in the jury have judged him wrongly because they're a known gang of outlaws and therefore they're biased against them. So automatically he's guilty without listening to the facts, right? Mm -hmm. That's actually not the case in the episode. They're really just trying to get him out of jail because they're outlaws. Um, That goes into a later episode too that I'm going to talk about. So interesting. The other episode that Clue was in before he was Riker, he played a deaf mute who kind of stumbles into town and one of the ranch hands at Shiloh, which is the main ranch the Virginian works at, owned by Judge Garth, takes him on to work at the ranch. There's a lot of preconceived notions going on there too because this guy who Clue plays is framed for murdering a guy. Again, there's a lot of murder in the Old West. There is a lot of murder. (laughs) Over and over murder, murder, murder. That role is significant because he doesn't have any lines. He's a deaf mute, so he's communicating like really well and Mm -hmm. it's a lot of physical acting so I really enjoyed watching that episode Clue was definitely a highlight there. Those are those two episodes, heavy in themes. Like I said, Frank Price wanted this show to be heavy in themes. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about Native American relations. Frank Price wanted there to be a Native American cook at the Shiloh Ranch just to show that the Garth family was sympathetic towards Native Americans. You know, because that was a, I mean, that's a huge deal, mm-hmm. right? You know, Indians are the outsiders. They are thought of as savages. And portrayed even on the Virginian a few times that way. Price wanted to acknowledge that the Indians had been in this country way before white men. He also wanted to show that the West was changing at this time. And, you know, like as modern times approached, people were more accepting of the Indians. That's a really progressive approach. Mm -hmm. That they weren't just constantly over the horizon waiting to attack. Like a lot of shows portrayed them. But that actually didn't make it into the show, unfortunately. That's not to say that those themes weren't there throughout the series. Another thing that Frank Price wanted to drive home, he purposely named the ranch Shiloh. And this is a little iffy, I want to say. Frank Price named the ranch Shiloh after the Civil War Battle of Shiloh, which took place in Pittsburgh Landing in Tennessee. Now, according to Price, now this is like not accurate, okay? If you know your American history, and I know not everybody knows every detail (laughs) of the Civil War, okay? I don't either. I grew up in the South where we're taught the Civil War like crazy. I don't know every detail, but I do know (laughs) that the Union won the Battle of Shiloh. But Frank Price, for some reason, has this idea that nobody won the Battle of Shiloh, like it was a draw, which fits his narrative. God bless him. It does fit his narrative (laughs) because like the idea that, yes, historically, the Battle of Shiloh was one of the bloodiest Civil War battles. Like this took place before Gettysburg. Gettysburg was the thing, right? Yes. Everybody died. Shiloh was the bloodiest one before that and it kind of got them thinking grant especially uh general grant general i don't know mm, oh my god sounds like a general here i am like american history <laughs> he's probably more than general he's probably I don't, I don't know what's above general i don't know whatever I tell you. ulysses s 
Ulysses S. Grant, future president of the United States and Union Army leader. Most famous Ulysses. <laughs> yes. Besides the other James Joyce Ulysses. But okay, anyway, <laughs> Battle of Shella got him thinking that this was not going to be a war that was decided by one battle. You know, they had this idea that for some reason, oh, oh we're just going to have one huge battle and then it's going to be over. Like, no. They're going to get scared and go away. <laughs> yeah, this is not happening. But anyway, so it really took a toll on people. And like I said, Price had this idea, apparently, that nobody won this battle. Like, there's a quote from him that I read in a book all about the Virginian, okay? Like, this is like a thing that I'm not making up. <laughs> but uh, he's wrong. But the thing about it is that if it were that nobody won this battle, that the North or the South did not win, that it was a draw, and it was so bloody, all this life would have been lost for what? For yeah, I mean, it still kind of is, right? Right. That's what war is. Yeah. But it would have been even more apparent. But that's why he named the ranch Shiloh. Because he wanted to be like a neutral ground. Yeah, exactly. Which is a great idea. It's just not true. God bless him. So in the Virginian's third season is when Clue became a regular. And the first episode of that season introduces his character, Emmett Riker, and it is titled Riker. So it's obviously an episode about him. (laughs) Yeah. We mentioned already, you know, this is a show that had moving parts and could be about anyone and anything within them and isn't always just about the Virginian, even though it's named after him. And this really seems to be... of an origin story of hey this dude just wandered into town his name's Riker he seems like he's pretty tough yeah Riker is initially kind of shown as a outlaw but not he has a checkered past that isn't necessarily up to legal standards at times so Riker comes into town because he's been offered a job by one of those land barons we keep coming back to in westerns in this case played by a recognizable guest star Leslie Nielsen yes who a lot of people don't remember from his pre-comedy days, but was a working actor in a lot of real productions back in the 50s, 60s, <laughs> 70s. I don't want to say those aren't real productions. That's rude. He's in some pretty it was more. Movies. It was more serious. Yeah, he was in more serious productions. They were all real. Yes. Everything he did happened. <laughs> Just so we're clear. <laughs> anyway, Clue plays Riker, who comes into town to work for this baron until he finds out that the job is to kill a rancher who is on land that this guy wants. We immediately learn at this point that Emmett Riker is not that kind of fellow. He's not interested. And he says to shove it, not in those terms because it was the West, <laughs> which leads to the guy getting murdered anyway and him getting framed for the murder, which is another common theme. It was very easy to frame people for murder in the West, especially if you're Clue. I guess, but (laughs) we learn a lot about Riker within that first 90 minutes, and the character is introduced as this not necessarily upstanding man, and he admits it when they're trying to figure out what is going on, and the lawman in town knows he's not necessarily the killer, but is being looked at this way. Clue even admits that he's a gunman, a gambler, and a drifter, so people aren't gonna go with what he says. Trampas is skeptical of him. There's a moment where they meet and Trampas is suspicious of Riker and Clue delivers a fantastic short comment of Come on, come on, you're not some old woman running up and down the street with a bag full of gossip. You know who I am, you answer your own question. Sit down. Sit down. Talk to me. You can kill me later. As he tries to make peace with this situation and work it all out. This episode instantly makes Riker a star. 
I mean, he is a unique character. He is a moral character. The easy thought for me, looking at it from modern heroes and modern things we've seen, is to look at First Riker as an anti-hero. But that is definitely not the case. Yeah. You know, we've seen that happen in westerns of this time as movies and TV adapted into the 70s where it became cool to be the morally not quite straightforward hero where the heroes were killing and doing their own thing and standing up in ways that we hadn't seen from John Wayne or those heroes in the past. Yeah. Things were getting a little edgy. Mm -hmm. And Riker seems to represent that a little, but the more we see of Riker throughout his time on the Virginian, the more we realize that he is like Pat Garrett in The Tall Man, more driven by the law. And maybe not even the law, but just what is right, what he believes. Yeah, he's so much more than an anti-hero. Yes. And he's more than a hero, too. Like you said, I mean, he's not the kind of guy that's going to be on the straight and narrow all the time. No. He's not Pat Garrett. No. And this first episode, he cheats to win the ranch in question from this woman so he can defend it. And then later in the episode, we find out he knew all along that that didn't legally count and the ranch was still hers and Mm -hmm. he was just helping out the way he could. Right, right. So he has the ability to be manipulative, but not in a negative sense. He knows how to make things go his way. Oh, and like everything I'm saying right now sounds like it's a bad thing, but there's a way... Man, I I don't want to bring the Bible into anything, but there's advice, let's say, that is biblical that says, basically, be as cunning as a snake, but as gentle as a lamb. That, to me, is exactly what Riker is. Yeah, definitely see that. And especially when we get into some of the later episodes where he becomes a lawman, a sheriff, eventually. Mm -hmm, That mm -hmm. he is going to stand up and do what he needs to, but it's for the right reasons, and he's not wavering and letting go of what he believes. I kind of to look at his past and again it's never really specified if it's criminal past just that he's been a gunman uh, obviously there's crime involved there but it's not like he's wanted or anything he's portrayed as having not been the worst of anything that he ever did and as we learn a little more about his past in some episodes it helps build that future lawman persona but it's a character who knows you know he's good at what he's doing and can do it but I also do see that gentleness that maybe even a little bit I don't want to say tragic but he He wants to do more. He wants to make amends. He's sorry he can't be better. He's sorry he has this stuff in his past and every action is driven by, I know what I can't do. Yeah, yeah. Before we get too far into the character of Riker, I just want to say something. You know, I'm not really the kind of person who publicly declares who she has a crush on. No, that's not you at all. No, I mean, like, I don't really find that to be important, Yeah, I mean, there's more to life than that. Yeah, I mean, crushes are crushes, man. It's not middle school. Like, why? (laughs) Yeah, it's not middle school. Why advertise, you know? But I will say, remember last episode when I was talking about this conception I had in my head as Clue Gulliger being a kind of a a gruff son of a bitch. Yeah, that was your word. Yep. A gruff son of a bitch. A mean old man. Mm -hmm. You know, like... Because that's what we knew from the 80s and Clue. Right. (laughs) So did the Virginian change your perspective? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Uh, Yes. As a matter of fact, it did. Seeing Clue in the early 60s as Billy the Kid, but more so as Riker. I have such a huge crush on Riker. It's ridiculous. (laughs) It is ridiculous. Okay. I am so in love with Emmett Riker. And he's just like the perfect 
blue-eyed cowboy who, you know, he's got a struggle, Mm -hmm. but he always does what's right. Mm -hmm. You can get behind him, and Clue is perfect as Riker, and he's just so cool. Yeah, he is. He's so cool. Oh, my God. Uh, Oh, my God. And my eyes are turning to hearts right now. Like, he is so (laughs) handsome as Riker, too. I mean, like, I can't get over it. Like, I don't want to reduce Clue to, like, how I think he's handsome, but I really do. (laughs) It is immediately. He walks onto the show, and granted, I didn't have a connection with the Virginian before seeing it for Clue, but Uh oh, my goodness, that first episode, he just takes over. Oh, my gosh, The Virginian is in, like, two scenes in this episode. Mm -hmm. Trampus is there, but he's just kind of, we don't know him that well, and it just becomes his story. The parallel for me for this first episode that obviously plays into the person trying to buy off land is another of my absolute favorite westerns, Shane. Okay. Where this gunman comes into town, helps this farm family to keep their land from a vicious uh, man that's trying to take over and the gunman and thieves he's bringing in. Now that character is a tragic character and is a kind of doomed character. And that's, I think, what kind of started me thinking about Riker that way. But yeah, this is more than that. This is not that kind of fatalistic tale for Riker. This is more than redemption and that's the end. It's him proving that he's more than that over and over. Yeah. Throughout the episodes we see him. Mm -hmm. I know we both watched an episode that came shortly after his introduction as Riker where a character who was a father figure to him, sounds like had taken him in in like a foster relationship, is a criminal who's been released from prison and comes to town. And that is another piece of really just building this character as he had his past, but he is doing what's right now. And it's a heartbreaking episode. Mm -hmm. Like it's actually emotionally affected for a 1960s TV show to make that happen to me in 2018, I was shocked. But it's a great story of looking at your past and realizing you have to move on and to help change as much as you can. That episode is also cool because he gets in a fist fight with Bruce Dern. Yep, Bruce Dern shows up like <laughs> the tall man. There are guest cameos, maybe weren't you know cameos at the time, but people we recognize still today show up throughout the show, uh-huh. and it's really cool. Oh, totally. All sorts of them. Oh, my God, there's so many guest stars on mm-hmm. The Virginian. Uh, watch the episode with George Kennedy. Watch the episode with, okay, someone who's important to me, Ida Lupino, who's one of the first female directors, yep. really. There's so many. There's uh... Later in the series, there were even guest stars like Charles Brown. Johnson and Robert Redford, who became the biggest stars mm-hmm. in Hollywood. It was a huge show, and yeah, at least for what I've seen from it from season three and four, the little bit I watched, and Clue appeared on the show from 1963 to 68. He was at least credited on 104 episodes. Wow. and That's so many. Yeah, and it spanned throughout that time, throughout several seasons. Again, he moved through different roles in the town and on the ranch, but he really seemed like the star of the show to me, every episode I watched that he was in as a major part and it's such a great performance and such a great character that it does show clue in a light i never knew and never thought about Mm -hmm. as Mm a 100 percent leading man young he's playing a 26 year old according to (laughs) the first episode i think he was a little older than that but not by a ton but he comes into the show and really just 
makes it his own and it's really cool to see yeah i really agree with you there i mean clue really really makes this show uh, something special i mean it's special anyway but something really special Mm -hmm. that's not to say that james drury and doug mcclure aren't awesome on this show or roberta shore who plays betsy Mm -hmm. she does an amazing job Mm -hmm. too and even you know judge garth is like a really really great character Mm -hmm. he's a very righteous man i liked this show so much that i started watching episodes that didn't have clue okay like this is what this did to me clue made this show for me but then i was like i really need to know more about this more about this world even without it yeah yeah like i want to know about trampas and mm-hmm. the virginian and randy <laughs> like like i want to know all these things so you know luckily this show is streaming on stars so if you have access to stars you can watch every episode of the virginian if you want to some of these episodes are on youtube so you can find them there yep. as well but as far as other streaming services like we said earlier it's not on Amazon. It's not on Netflix. Yeah. It's not on whatever else. Hulu. Do they think These are hard to find. Don't have computers. I don't get. maybe so but anyway there are several episodes of the virginian that have to do with you know modern problems too or things that we can consider in our modern times there's you know you were talking about how some of your old favorite westerns have correlations in with some of these episodes one of mine is johnny guitar the uh, joan crawford movie from the Mm -hmm. 50s that one is all about her she is a casino owner and the townspeople really don't like her like she has this really bad reputation like I guess they think she's a tramp or something. She's a woman in power so you know you gotta bring her down. Yeah right exactly and the interesting thing is that there is another woman. She's like leader of the pack against her. Mm -hmm. That has that but like you said woman in power like Mm -hmm. what's that about? That can't be. There's an episode of the Virginian. This is one of the Clue episodes he's in it for a second where a woman leaves Pennsylvania to go to uh, Medicine Bow it's Medicine Bow Wyoming that's where the show takes place because she wants to be a lawyer out there. I mean, like, she is a lawyer. She's an attorney, and she looks up the place in the United States that has the least amount of lawyers per capita, and it ends up being Wyoming. So she's like, oh, I'm going to go to Medicine Bow. And so she does, and the Virginian actually has to hire her to represent him. He's got this little dispute over um, someone made a saddle for him that was wrong, and he's getting sued, and blah, blah, blah. But So there's this thing of, like, she's trying to rent an office and a house that's owned by Judge Garth. But Judge Garth is out on business, so the Virginian, as his foreman, gets to make business decisions for him in his place. An attorney. You seem to find that surprising. It's just that I don't think I've ever met a female lawyer before. Well, that makes us even. I've never met a cowboy before. Shall we get on with business? Yes, of course. How much do you want for the rent? Well, Judge Garth is asking $30 a month. That would be agreeable if you'll just draw up the lease. Uh, Miss Greenlee, may I ask if you have private means of support or will you be relying upon your fees as an attorney? That's a very personal question. Well, I'm sorry, but I do represent the landlord. Don't you think I'll earn enough to pay for the rent? Well. You know, you wouldn't ask a question like that if I were a seamstress or a governess. A governess would hardly be running a store. You know very well what I mean. You see, Miss Greenlee, out here at least, most law cases are between men. It might be hard for a man to think about hiring a woman to fight for him. A legal fight is one with brains, not brawn. Or don't you concede a woman can have a brain? Well, of course you have a brain. You just don't think I should be allowed to use it, is that it? Miss Greenlee, you don't seem to understand. I have an obligation to Judge Garth to make sure that any tenant is financially responsible. Perhaps I should conduct my business with Judge Garth. 
well, do you think you can make rent? Because, I mean, you're a lady lawyer, <laughs> you know? I do feel like part of the reason they don't have as many lawyers out there is because it sure seems like a lot of people get shot before they get the trial. <laughs> Maybe so. But, so this episode is about her dealing with the, the bias against professional women. And, mm-hmm. Okay, not professional women, not in that sense. Not, you know what yeah. I mean, right? Right. You know what I mean. <laughs> business women, only business of law, I guess. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, old West. So, so, yeah, there are tons of episodes of The Virginian that are kind of controversial, I guess. Mm-hmm. One of the guest stars uh, who was on the show more than once is uh, little Kurt Russell. Yeah, we found that out on accident that he's on the show more than once. Cause yeah. I watched an episode with Kurt Russell, which I'll talk about in a second here because that is like literally my favorite episode of the show. And we were talking about it and it turns out you watched the episode with Kurt Russell, but we didn't watch the same episode. Yeah, you were like, oh, I watched the Kurt Russell episode and I was like, oh, OK, let me find it. So I watched this other episode that has Kurt Russell and didn't even have Riker in it. And I was like, okay, I know you like Kurt Russell, but... Yeah, you thought I was crazy and I was a little bit, but <laughs> it's the world that's crazy. Oh, sure. But so this episode that's your favorite, tell me about it. Oh, yeah. So not only did Clue get the first episode of season three as his origin story, but the first episode of season four is also primarily an episode with Clue as Riker. He's the lawman at this point. He's the deputy sheriff. And it's this really unique storyline of a man breaks his brother out of a military prison because he was convicted of a crime that he thinks he's innocent of and in the process accidentally kills a guard oh so Riker is sent to track down these brothers that are on the run the elder brother that just did the killing happens to be married with a son played by Kurt Russell and by all accounts has been a good man his entire life up until this moment so as the episode twists and turn Riker is trying to figure out the situation and work with this man and make this situation as peaceful as possible and get the brother back in and get this all sorted out and it ends up boiling down to a sequence where the man is in custody with Riker and they're just talking and they're you know making things right and the opportunity to escape comes up thanks to little Kurt and Riker is at gunpoint having to talk down this man and reason with him about why the law matters and why he's accountable for what happened even if it was an accident now let me ask you something what would you do if it was you supposed to be taking that train ride in the morning I've been thinking about that hoping that if it ever was me I'd come off half as good a man as you have up till a minute ago and when I thought I was doing the right thing but it was a lie. It was for nothing. Now I could go to whatever I got coming to me. At least was thinking I, I did what I had to. But Will lied to me. No. It was a mistake. You made a mistake, Matt. For a lie, for the truth, it, it, it was still wrong. And you made a man's mistake, Matt. And you're bound to pay a man's price for it. Now, I, I, I don't know why Will told you what he did. I, I don't know that. Except I think he just hated your insights. I raised him. I took care of him. You had all the strength, man. You had nothing. No, he's reaching out to you again. It's his hand on that shotgun. You're letting Will drag you down to something no better than he was. Listen to me. I am a man in my prime. I am married to a woman who still makes my blood run hot when I look at her. And I've got a boy who needs me. And I don't want to die. Man, how bad you want to stay alive. Bad enough to kill another man. Just don't you try me. Because that's the only way you're going to get out of here tonight by killing me. Why, you're supposed to be my friend. Now, why don't you just walk in the why cell? Why don't I make it just easier on myself, Matt? Because I believe what that judge said at your trial. It's a 
hard, rough road to follow the law. And you throw it away and there's nothing, Matt. There's just nothing. I don't think you do it, Emma. You'll have to prove it to me. And it's just an amazing moment to see for an actor to have that scene and just carry their presence that way and face down a gun empty-handed. And it's just, it's a wonderful sequence. It's acted so perfectly by Clue. It really hit me in the right spot of, this is something you don't see in a lot of, not even Western stories, of a character who is completely at one with what they believe and is able to fight through even when, you know, the crime kind of makes sense. The criminal is a friend, definitely has ties to a favorite Western we've talked about already, 310 to Yuma, where Mm -hmm. Clue's purpose at this point is, I know what I did and I'm going to make sure this guy gets on the train to the jail as much as I have to face him down and face down, you know, other people disagreeing with me. And it's just, you don't see that, or you don't, well, you do see that. You see moral stories, but you don't expect that from a 1960s Western on TV. And like we've been talking about this whole episode, that is more than I ever expected I would get out of these shows. I didn't, I don't know, you know, if it was just the preconceived notions of what Westerns were when I was a kid and my grandparents (laughs) watching them, like we said. Yeah. Or maybe just thinking that, you know, 1960s TV was more simple. And, you know, it was a simpler time, like people always say. But no, this was deep stuff. Like, there was so much going on in this episode that I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And that, if nothing else, is enough reason for me to say anyone should check this out. Hey, you know, Kurt Russell, though, I just want to mention this really quickly. Uh, There's an urban legend. I don't know if you know this, but there's an urban legend that Walt Disney's last words were Kurt Russell. Because, you know, at the time, Kurt was was working with Disney Studios. As a child for Disney, yeah. Right. So this was when he was a teenager. I think he was like 15 or something when Disney died. And Kurt tells the story of him on set of a TV Western. And it's not specific what TV Western it is, but I want to imagine that it's the Virginian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for the purpose of our podcast, Kurt Russell was on the set of the Virginian. Yes. <laughs> when someone came up and told him the news that Walt Disney had passed and he was very sad. But the legend is that the last words that Disney spoke was just Kurt Russell, like without any context whatsoever. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, what really happened was they had found a note. It was like one of the last things that Disney had written in his office. And it was just a list of things like people's names and the last one on it was Kurt Russell and it was probably just ideas for future productions but I kind of love that story that (laughs) like can you imagine if uh, Walt Disney died and the last thing he said was your name Mm, that'd be impressive (laughs) I'm more like I imagine when I die the last thing I say might be Kurt Russell (laughs) probably (laughs) or Highlander I, I can imagine both for you I totally agree with you. Like going back and seeing these 60s TV Westerns gave me a completely new perspective on what Westerns can and should be. And I really appreciate them. And I'm going to seek out more of them, I think. You know, Westerns are kind of a, uh, I don't want to say a void in my filmic knowledge. Filmic? Just film. I guess filmatic, cinematic knowledge. I don't know. And yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of fascinated by them now. So uh, really, thank you, Mike, for doing this with me. Yeah. Oh, thank you for having me too. And like I said, it it gives another perspective on Westerns and it gives a whole new perspective on Clue. You know, I was totally Clue had been on TV as a younger actor before his 80s and even later horror work was what I knew him for when I first encountered him as an actor. But it really to see it and to see the scale of of what he did between these two shows he was a star and it really is cool to go back and see that and understand where he was coming from as he moved into the later parts of his career
career. Yeah, totally. Now, if you are so inclined, you can go to, oh, let's say twitter.com, look up at get a clue pod. You will find us there. You can follow us. You can go to iTunes. How about that? We are in iTunes now, also Stitcher, but uh, just search get a clue and, uh, you know, leave us a rating. Leave yeah. us a review. Leave us a review. Tell us if you like clue. Subscribe, please. <laughs> I like clue. The end. See, that I would take that review. I mean, it depends on how many stars, I guess. Oh, uh, well, basically, if you like clue, we like you. Oh. Wink. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, thanks, Mike, for uh, talking with me today. And uh, we will be back soon to talk about 80s comedies. 80s yeah. comedies. Can you believe it? That does not seem now. Maybe this will change my perspective of Clue again. But yeah, maybe that is not where we would expect <laughs> to find Clue. We're just all right. over the place. Totally. So we're going to be talking about three movies that I know of. Tape Heads with John Cusack and Tim Robbins, who appears in mm-hmm. that film. Into the Night, directed by John Landis, starring Jeff Goldblum mm-hmm. and Michelle Pfeiffer's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get you, sucker. I don't know if that's yeah. how I'm supposed to pronounce it. I'm, I'm going to get you, um, sucker. <laughs> that. There you go. How about that? We got to watch. I'm going to. Now that's too far, Mike. Don't. Don't do that. <laughs> don't be a caricature. I'm going to get you, sucker. From one of the Wayans brothers, I believe. Yes, the Wayans is. Yeah, the Wayans is. Keenan and Ivory, yeah. right? He was the director mm-hmm. of the group. Yeah, the group. They're not like the Jackson Five. <laughs> Off it. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's our show. So uh, thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next time. Y'all come Good back night. Now here. Oh, God. No, that's, no, let's not do that. Bye. Get a clue! Get a Clue is brought to you by Ouch My Ego. Visit ouchmyego.com where you can find more great shows such as What Did We Just Watch and Vincent Price's Laugh. Each episode is researched and performed by LB Bargeron and The Mic. Visit tmdfps.blogspot.com for The Mic's double feature picture show. Special thanks to our illustrious producer Andrew Bargeron for designing our super rad logo. Visit jemetsko.com for more of his fancy pants artwork. And last but not least, a big thank you to the brilliant Adriana Gober for writing and performing our amazing theme song. Thanks for listening and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs>